Hey everyone, welcome to Tech Talks. Today we have our lovely guest, Dario Nardi, and he has a new book called The Magic Diamond. And I recommend you guys go check it out. And so lovely to have you, Dario. Uh, would you like to tell us a bit about you? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so thank you for joining. Um, I'm Dario, and uh, I got certified in the use of the MBTI specifically in 1994 and have been using type ever since then. Um, I did uh, a bit of work with Linda Behrens, a PhD marriage and family therapist over the years, an organizational psychologist uh, who was um, a student of David Kiersey's, you probably know from Temperament and Please Understand Me. And that was back in the early 70s. And uh, I have met uh, a number of people over the years in the type community uh, through the 90s and 2000s. So I feel really privileged and it's very nice to come from such a, a strong background. And uh, of course now the internet has opened up and, and other areas of research. So I've been doing um, uh, neuroscience research since 2006, looking at brain activity and brain wiring. Um, it, what goes on and for people of uh, different backgrounds in different countries. Uh, looking at, you know, career and age and um, uh, the type, of course. Uh, let's see some other things. You, you might know me from, uh, yeah, a number of books that are out there, like Neuroscience of Personality or Eight Keys to Self-Leadership. And um, I feel like with Jung, always there's this, like a spiral over the years of getting to, to know his work or ideas or people's take on them a little bit and then going deeper, you know, and, and then returning to the material five, 10 years later or something like that and seeing it a level deeper again after life experience and so on. So I really wanted to bring um, that latest round in a way to, to, uh, to people. And because I feel like the types, uh, what is the word today, superpower is development. You know, that's something that makes it very different from five factor model or something like that, the disc, which are trait models. Uh, the type is very much about mental processes, uh, or Jung would say like psychological types, and and it's all about development and his development concepts. So I wanted to bring more of that, and I had all of these like workshop handouts and stuff like that over the years, um, and it, it, you know coronavirus hit, and I thought, gee, I'm stuck at home. What am I going to do? Maybe I'll pull together some of these things and make a booklet, but somehow that ended up to 400 and some odd pages. And, um, but you know, to, to cover everybody. So uh, a bit of work went into it and I'm really, really happy, excited to be sharing it with people. I love all of your research into adding a growth and a spirituality component to the Jungian model of type. Like you talk a lot about one-sidedness, like Jung's concept of one-sidedness mm -hmm. and how alchemy is the antidote to one-sidedness and that was really cool and so can you tell us a little bit about what one-sidedness is and yeah yeah so uh in in his book which is almost uh the, the book that sort of started to get him famous uh in psychological types jung uh talked about the type problem and so we might not normally think of, of having a type or identifying with the type or something as a problem, but he saw it as a problem. He had the clients, uh, he saw it as necessary, the specialization happens, people grow in a particular direction, but um, when they get too biased in one direction, then it becomes 
one-sidedness. And that means that there's an imbalance in the system. And he observed in his clients that imbalance would come out in different ways. So sometimes people make room in their life, like they're like, oh, this little space, like one hour a week or a few times a week or whatever, they have an outlet, uh, you know, like sensing outlet for person with intuiting preference. And, and that's okay. Um, it's just okay. Then there are, you know, when times when we're going to repress stuff and we don't allow it to come out, but it's still working in the unconscious. Uh, and not only that, Jung saw the... The, the psyche is very much a, a systems idea that the psyche is not just mental sort of acrobatics in the head uh, or even in the whole nervous system. It's actually includes society, relationships, all of that. So an intuiting type might feel like, oh, you know, I've been developing like sensing in terms of like paying more attention to their body or where they put their attention to sensory things. But are they actually taking care of sensory stuff in their everyday life? you know, like uh, paying for bills and having like a stable place to live and uh, having physical enjoyment, um, uh, whatever it is. So it, it really is, he saw it as something interactive and it can come back to bite us when life becomes very unbalanced, when it becomes one-sided. Uh, he saw that usually coming out of some kind of neurosis. Uh, of course, it could come out worse for some people, but for the most part, some kind of neurosis and the clients would come to him and he's like, okay, let's find out where the imbalance is and to help the person um, rebalance. And that's, uh, and, and many people, you know, they're aware that they have some kind of neurotic issue, so they try and compensate. And that compensation may actually make things worse uh, or it could help things along for a while. So it, it really just like rereading him, this was like the third time in 30 years, almost for me reading Jung and each, you know, decade, I get something more. And this really struck me this time around this really dynamic nature of the psyche and, and how he saw one-sidedness in societies, uh, in groups and in relationships and in individuals, and that this led to all kinds of problems. That is so profound. Yeah, Young, I remember him kind of like referring to being too one-sided as a kind of dysfunction or a kind of like some something to be corrected, like a disorder almost that you have to like like fix and even out or else like, if it gets too out of hand, it, it, it like can can ruin your life in, in the terms of reoccurring patterns that, that occur in your life. Yeah, yeah, and, and ruin other people's lives too. And um you know, what was interesting, of course, is that he saw it more as than just like, oh, you're using your right hand too much, so you have to use your left hand now and make them equal use or something. He didn't think that way. Um, he really, in fact, he saw the one-sidedness as an opportunity. It's sort of like a plate, and but the problem is the plate is empty, or it only has salad on it, or whatever it is. So it's like, here is this opportunity. The person has this energy. They have this tension. Something is coming up in life that's demanding uh, the, some kind of respect and that the person do something um, and that this becomes an opportunity to engage in alchemy, as you mentioned. So there's this idea he has of the transcendent function. Uh, you know, they're actually talked about many different kinds of functions, uh, the aesthetic function, religious function, social function, uh, philosophical function, unity function. Uh, and then he talked about mental functions, and then that's what we sort of narrowed down and say that's what type is about. But um, 
it really, when he talks about this transcendent function, he's like, there's this inner, inner growth mechanism or inner uh, alchemist in a way that, you know, sees that there's like the strength, uh, this bias. And then there's this other thing that starts to come up that pushes against it. And the, the thing that's neglected, and he means this in, in very practical ways, you know, like the person who's like, oh, you know, like writes a children's fantasy stories, hasn't sold any yet, it doesn't do the work to figure out how to sell them, and now is almost homeless, you know, so where that's the actual, the thing that's pushing up. So, so really, they come to a point where there's like a parity almost, and the person feels that's like that state where they're like, oh, my God, I need help, and uh, where people recognize that they need help. And he's like, we want to help the person engage in some kind of process to create something new. And the metaphor I like to use is water. Um, because water is made up of oxygen and hydrogen. And if we think of them separately, like in two different boxes at room temperature, they're gases and they're flammable. And yet when we bring them together, they become inflammable liquids. And, and one liquid, and it has, water has very different characteristics in either oxygen or hydrogen. And, and so he saw this alchemy as like the person can find ways to transform, to take this like difficulty that they're having, something is coming up and hitting and actually turn that into something beautiful. It might not succeed, um, but he did see that both the unconscious and the conscious ego play a part. So he's like, none of the ego was not necessarily bad. We don't want to like make the person like bland. Um, the idea or is, is this is an opportunity for creativity. Beautifully put, an opportunity for alchemy. That is so amazing. <laughs> and that makes me think about how there's a quote that H Heidi had about what you said. And you mm -hmm. said that the ego is an organ of the psyche. Mm -hmm. Attempting to remove it is about as effective as attempting to re remove your stomach. And that brings up a really helpful way of putting it. So it's kind of like alchemy is kind of like working with what you have. So it's taking two substances and making like a new substance. So it's like, it's not about getting rid of your ego. It's about like working with it and creating opportunities with it. And so that's so beautifully put. Yeah, yeah well, you know, I have to give Jung credit. And it's, uh, I, I would say in terms of the, the ego and shadow work, most people think of shadow work, you know, Jung said the point was not to create a lot of light and happiness and everything is great. And um, you sort of think is like, a, you know, California spirituality. It's it's um, it really is taking the things that are in the unconscious. And, and in fact, by taking what I really mean is, is that we create space in our lives to to allow the sort of like a timid animal in the unconscious to come out. And no, it's going to be safe, it's going to be okay, and, and to create space to work with that. And, and that is really, you know, any kind of practice, and he espoused active imagination. I think that there are more advanced techniques that are more, more powerful, but different paths leading to the same place, to take what was in the darkness and to allow it to come out into the light. And, and sometimes it comes out into the light, and then that's fine. The next step is for it to dissipate. Because that's what happens in alchemy too. You know, you're you're maybe bringing stuff together, create something new, but you may also be boiling something or freezing something. You know, to use a metaphor, and and you may like a person may be carrying around something very painful from childhood, and the trick is not to like try and you know like make that into a nice box and put that somewhere down in the stomach, but but open up 
and create a conversation for that piece to come out and eventually release and let go of it. And that might take hours that might, in the right circumstances, it might take years. You know, it might be a spiral kind of process. Um, and then that's another piece in the book, which is not so Jungian per se, but the systems thinking to borrow all of these metaphors from nature and that we're a part of nature. So let's learn from how nature works. And that's the piece that I maybe bring in more from my own background rather than you. Yeah, I really like that reference in your book where you talk about like psych as a complex living system. It's not just one thing, but it's many things interacting with each other. And you have to understand it in its totality to understand it at all. In your book, you talk about seeds, like they're, they can grow in certain conditions really well, but in other conditions, it may not grow to be as well. But like we have like a certain seeds in us and that we can bring out. Um, I, I might be butchering the concept, but- that's, that's, Yeah, that, that absolutely is it. And it's, um, you know, that, this sort of, I, I go deeper in chapter two a little bit and borrow from some Jungians who talk about this idea of uh, genius or the diamond or whatever it is, which is the seed of potential within the person. And we can think of that as like, if we're carrying the seed, like an acorn, that acorn is not guaranteed to grow into an oak tree. And not only that, we don't know where the acorn is going to be planted or what its role is going to be within the larger system. Um, but it will hopefully grow with the right conditions. And, and while every tree is different, uh, you know, the acorn also contains the strong push or propensity this pattern to go in a different direction. You know, so basically like an oak tree is not the same as a pine tree. They're never going to be the same, but environment also plays such a huge role. And, and so there's, there's that environment and there's this potential. I don't even necessarily say it's genetic, it's just nature, you know, it's potential. And then there's the intersection somewhere in there that's the possibility for something creative and that is that diamond or that genius um, where it allows to, for the person to really be, like become, to bring their something special to the world. Their special magic, as you put it, because your yeah. book is called The Magic Diamond. <laughs> yeah. 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 So throughout the book, you talk about one-sidedness and how on the other side of that is wholeness. Mm. And so could you talk a little bit about wholeness? Because um, in your book, you reference it as like a feeling of complete joy or wholeness. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's, so, you know, it, it's, um, Jung, Jung talked a bit about wholeness and he felt that it was not something that could be arrived at and then maintained permanently. Uh, it was more like a spiral or a seasonal pattern that the person arrives at a state where they've done work, they've engaged in alchemy, something new and creative has happened. Uh, and they've reached this really sort of uh, aligned, say like a congruent and, and productive state, um, this joyful state. Uh, but that can't last forever because the environment changes, the person changes, uh, and they're eventually called to do something new. And then, you know, where will they go from there? So there'll be new opportunities again to sort of move up. And I think a practical example, I want to say like, well, just personal at least, from my own life is I learned about type very early. You know, I was still an undergraduate. Um, 
And then by the time I got to my mid thirties, I was working very actively with type and I got this feeling like, no, you know, I've learned everything I can about my dominant function. I mean, it wasn't naive about like all of the other functions, but the dominant function at least. Uh, and I'm really happy to say that by the time I got to my mid forties and, and that I was starting to say, well, no, no, maybe, maybe not. And, and so the last five years have been really interesting that actually I, I feel like I've really grown the plate of my dominant function, uh, mainly with the aid of my inferior at the same time. So that really speaks to, to some of the Jungian concepts and John B.B. And, and others who talk about like the spine of the personality being a dominant and inferior together. Um, that, that that's opened up sort of like a different aspects of my own dominant function that I, I was unaware of. Um, not just internally, I mean, I, now that I think about it, there are other people of my type who, who do their dominant function their different way. I'm like, oh, okay, like I can see that now. Like that's, and can, so growing the plate then gives me, yeah, more opportunity, but also more challenges. Um, and, and so a person could then sometimes through their life, whenever this is, sink into a dark place, you know, like the dark night of the spirit or of the soul, it's called sometimes. So the person can be in the grip, that's another term. Um, they'd be like at the opposite end of things. And it's funny because in Jung's descriptions of each of the eight, what he called like psychological types, the, he spends probably three quarters of the time talking about all the negative stuff, all the ways they go wrong. And there's like, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the worst. And, and so, yeah, then that worst spot can be really not good. So I talk about that in the Magic Diamond as well. And then in that intermediate space where probably like 80% of us are in, um, if you sort of read the psychology literature where people are, this like socially adapted space um, where we figure out how to use our, our talents in a way that meets society's needs and meets our needs good enough. Not 100% satisfying, it's sort of limiting, um, but is good enough. And so, and we could be even more, you know, like create this like very like fine spectrum of where people are as they go through life. But it seemed like three points to highlight those and, and to sort of help people as reference points, you know, where are they in their development right now, knowing that, you know, winter eventually becomes spring again, and then summer. Yeah, that's a really cool concept about like how your psych has like seasons um, that like come and go. I don't know, like your psych development kind of, kind of has like cycles and it's okay if you're at a low if you're at a high it's all part of the bigger scheme of just how things work because it's never going to be just completely highs or completely lows it's about like how you navigate in those the the best to utilize your potential as a person i don't know seeing like the highs and the lows as an opportunity i guess if that's a little vague but yeah no i, I <laughs> it's a great way to put it because the, the seasons are a great metaphor, but they're not a perfect one because the seasons are mechanical in a way and very predictable. Uh, but the person could spend 40 years in the grip in a dark place. And then in the last 10 minutes before death, find like a, something completely different out of that. And you know, that's not really an ideal scenario. So as you said, like it, it's mindful, 
Uh, it allows us to navigate. We can see opportunities, and hopefully, we spend more time in the more um, more whole places. And so that's what the book is about. And and I feel like a lot of really good type work uh, after the the self discovery piece, like oh, this is my type, or this this type describes me well. And uh, because a person isn't a type per se, but you know, it's like these are ways of describing people. And, and you put this on and you're like, yeah, you know, this really fits. It tells me a lot, uh, but now what? And so it helped the people with the now what? Yeah, it's like, how do you take this to the next step to help you as a person become a better person? <laughs> like a you, but a 2.0 version of you. And so my question for you, Dario Nardi is, what is the magic diamond? What is it a metaphor for? Mm. You know, so I, I have to give I have to give credit where it's due. And there's uh, feminist uh, Sandra Bem in the seventies uh, formulated this idea that uh, masculine and feminine were not two ends of a polarity. And we know this concept, don't we, in type, because there's like sensing at one end of the polarity, intuiting at the other end, or thinking, feeling, or perceiving, judging, or whatever it is. And she said, I, I don't think that's right. And in fact. The way that MBTI presents type oftentimes, uh, at least through the actual MBTI instrument and the letters, gives also this false impression. Whereas Jung has said, you know, the person contains, every person has both masculine and feminine elements in them, and, and the same with the elements of type. So I sort of see it as, you know, we think of a diamond, and the person is, well, I can't show the whole thing, but, you know, there's like a diamond shape. And at the bottom is a sort of like the tree that's growing up in a way, there's this undifferentiated space. There's predisposition, but we haven't actually, you know, the person who's three months old hasn't even become uh, ENFP or INTJ or whatever yet. I mean, in, in like in a real sense, they haven't shown, they haven't developed their skills or their gifts and even in a stereotypical way. So, so there's this potential there. And, and the same for non-preferred functions that they start off, there's just like this mass of clay called, say, feeling for a person who's a thinking preference. And this feeling is just like is undifferentiated. Not, it's not turned into anything yet. So we start that way. And then we can go in one of two directions, you know, more or less. We can go more towards the thinking or feeling, more towards sensing or intuiting. And that's great. We specialize. And, and as we look at these, quadrants in the diamond, we go from the undifferentiated quadrants to one of these other two. And as we go to, say, the thinking quadrant, and we start to develop that and differentiate that really well, which shows up in our lives. We gain the skills that would be typical for someone with thinking preference. But then there's also this feeling side to develop. And the feeling side to develop doesn't mean Oh, I'm going to spend like, you know, two hours a week or 10 minutes a day doing feeling or only when I go to the movies or listen to music or whatever. It really is, is we've got this undifferentiated, these two polarities, and then there's the top quadrant of the diamond, which is empty. But Jung said, no, it's not empty. That's the transcendent function. That's this integrated space. And he said the transcendent function, when we use it, actually replaces the dominant or preferred function. Not like in totality, but it, it replaces what was going on there with something new. Uh, the same in Sandra Bem's work, she talked about the masculine and feminine actually arrive at a place that fills that fourth quadrant in a way 
and, and is the integrated unique element of the person. Uh, you know, Vin Diesel probably bakes cookies too sometimes. You know, to use actually one of her, it, it's not me, that's actually one of, well, she didn't talk about Vin Diesel, but she talked about like that, you know, the tough guy and then he too can go into the kitchen and maybe that actually becomes a joy and a pleasure for him. And, and so that becomes part of his personality, even though it's a nurturing activity, which is not sort of that extreme polarity. So, I, you know, I wanted to draw away people away from this idea of stereotypes and, and the stereotype of thinking or feeling or sensing, intuiting, and invite people to fill out that top quadrant. And that's the whole idea of the magic diamond is to leave that top quadrant sort of empty. And the person is then wondering like, oh, like what goes there? I'm like, I don't know, like, look at your life. What, what's going on there? Or what can you make there? And so that's what the diamond is about. Uh, Jung also believed in the power of symbols and, and the, the diamond like is a mandala. And uh, mandala having these spokes that come out four or eight or whatever is just facets instead of spokes. And, uh, you know, the symbol becomes like a, a training wheel that, or a catalyst that helps us actualize what we need to. So I don't see the, the magic diamond as an endpoint. It's, it's like a, a catalyst or a tool in order to help us do our alchemy. Yeah, it's like an alchemical symbol. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In your book, you have like the, the first part where you talked about the undifferentiated. It's kind of like a stem cell, you know, it has like limitless potential in the sense that a stem cell can become anything. And mm -hmm. then um, you have the diamond splitting off into two sides. One is the favorite way, which is like your preference. So your, your functions and the other is like the neglected way. So the maybe the functions you use less or even like the metaphor can expand even past MBTI too. So it's like, what do you favor in life? And if you favor something, it'll naturally cast a shadow on the other side of life. And so I really love how you have like the favorite way and then the neglected way. And then at the top of the, the diamond, you have the integrated and transcendent way which I thought it was really beautiful. Cause it's like when you learn how to overcome your blind spots by like acknowledging them and mm. trying to not push them away, but to integrate them, you become more of a whole person because you're not just looking at one, one facet of you, but you're able to, to accept the spectrum of who you are and to, to use that to increase your potential instead of artificially limiting your potential to the, favorite parts of you because it's very easy that when we have a strength to double down on it because just like it is to use your right hand it's kind of automatic at a certain point if you're not checking yourself to use your dominant preferences in an exaggerated way so the path to transcendence is almost like learning to to reflect a little and it's to incorporate the less looked sides of you because they're still you and to still acknowledge them and to kind of form it into a healthy whole. Yeah, I really love the concept of alchemy that you bring to the table. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, I, it felt like, you know, Jung is such a rich body of work and, and his stuff on type was such a small early part of that work. Not unimportant. I mean, he referred to it later, but for him, it was not actually a main piece. Um, I, I think in terms of reaching people and speaking to the average person, it's really important. It's helpful. It actually brings many times magic to people's lives, which, which is why some other academic things like five factor model are almost helpless against it. 
uh, rage against it because they don't have the same magic to it. But to talk about even beyond shadow, this, and I really love what you you remind people that it it's about the the bias or one sidedness in shadow is more than type. It can be literally anything. And he talked quite a bit, especially in his writing through the years. Uh, even though he didn't live in Germany, he lived during that period when the the Nazis rose to power, and then after World War II, during and after, and and um, you know really had a, a you say like a second row seat on everything that was happening and, and really saw like, how does one side in this occurrence society? Uh, I, I do think that there is a lot of one sidedness in the traditional type community, uh, even among people who are much older, which is why it's like 90% intuiting types. Like that's a sign right off. One of the things I cover late in the book, uh, more as like a therapeutic tool is um, doing like a daily daily pulse in a way. And it's about attitudes and one-sidedness. And it's like, you don't even need to dig and analyze exactly in terms of type, but, but to see like, if, you, if a person is like reactive or sensitive against stuff that's coming up, that's hitting against something that the ego is defending, there's a one-sidedness potentially there. Um, so I, I feel like even beyond type, there there's so much to explore. Uh, but the book does, you know, focus mainly on type. And, and I just bring in what I can, which is some of the systems ideas and the neuroscience. And um, yeah. I really like your concepts because it kind of leads back to the concept of personal responsibility, because it's kind of like you have the personal responsibility to integrate your personality in, in the sense that the more you're one-sided, the more you'll have reoccurring problems. And these problems will intensify and compound more and more as you live life. And until you realize that you're the common denominator of these problems, sometimes that you have to accept the personal responsibility to like improve and to integrate parts of you that are harder to, or more uncomfortable, but you have to kind of go in the uncomfortability to then, to to own parts of yourself that you m might have a harder time accepting. Mm -hmm. So I, it's like complete integration is, is a lot of acceptance. Accepting your whole self is messy. And mm -hmm. until you accept mm -hmm. that messiness, you cannot alchemize yourself. An alchemy is like working with that messiness to create a message. Like, you know, personality hacker says that, that there's a mess in your message and that is your alchemy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there, there's a mess in your message and there's a message in your mass. And that's, um, you know, I, you say that very nicely, that mess part of it and, and be willing to, to live with that and the acceptance part. And, and one of the things that came out from some, some uh, statistical research, uh, some people may know about the cognitive processes assessment, keystocognition.com, and that's been around since 2006. I'm very lucky that my colleague at Johns Hopkins, Mina Barmani, has just finished up uh, like really deep statistical analysis there and of 130,000 people which is very cool. And one of the things she found, which she also found in the majors PTI, which is another type instrument, um, is that the, the fifth and sixth functions, especially the sixth function, what people think of the sixth function, actually plays a much larger role than people might think. It's not something in the shadows way over there. 
uh, it is in the shadow, but or in the background, I think is a better metaphor, foreground, background. Uh, your second function is in the foreground, your sixth function is in the background. And what I found over the years and, and reading and so on is that when it comes to the sixth function, it's not like, oh, I need to develop a whole bunch of sixth function stuff in me. It's mostly about acceptance. Accepting that there's a few things that are good about it that I can do that will really help me. It is about accepting that there are other people who do that process, some of whom do that badly, by the way. I mean, there are INTPs, for example, on ISTPs, yes, introverted thinking, but they're idiots. Not because of something genetically wrong, but because they're using a paradigm which is, is incomplete. You know, is holding them back, is not serving them well. Then there are other INTPs, ISTPs, who are using like an amazing paradigm. And it could be that then this INFJ or ISTJ or whatever comes along and sees this like, oh, you're right, there's this like paradigm, this principled way of thinking that's really amazing. And, and let me try and work with that and understand that. And, and even if they can't do it, they're like, oh, but you know, Jane over here is amazing at it. And it's like, you know, let, let me, even though she thinks so differently than me, let me create room in my life for Jane to contribute. And, and it may be messy at times because Jane takes all of these different paths and, and maybe says, no, 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 what we're doing here is not right. Like we have to start over or let's bring out some materials here and, you know, rethink it. Um, uh, in, in yet that, that creates an opportunity. So I think acceptance is a lot of it. Um, and then the conversely, the projection is when that shows up, you know, the ENFP who rejects extroverted feeling. We know what that person looks like is a very selfish, self-involved kind of person. Um, the ENTP who rejects extroverted thinking is going to be the person who's disorganized, uh, who, who doesn't understand why people aren't doing what he wants or she wants, but doesn't know how to tell them or organize them either. Um, maybe could use a day planner or a calendar, you know, and so it's, and what's interesting is that, you know, and what I do in the book is I give examples of how to bring that into a person's life, but they can only be examples because at every point along the way, it's going to be our unique choices, like what fits for us. And so how I do extroverted sensing with introverted intuiting will be different than how some other person does it. But I do want people to know, yes, you can do something like this. And, and here are some ideas so you don't spend 40 years not even knowing, oh, you're right, like I could do that. You know, to give the person the idea so that in two years or five years they can figure out what they need to and, and then create the magic. And that's the other meaning of the magic diamond um, is where does the magic come from? I feel like it really... We can experience magic from others when we allow in the fifth function, and we ourselves can create magic when we allow in the fourth function. Not to make it like hard and fast like that, but as like a rule of thumb in a way. And, and yeah, the first and the fourth, when you bring them together, it's like, oh, there's the magic. And for us and for other people. So that's like another meaning of the magic diamond. That is such a good way of putting it, Dario. It's like you can give 
examples of how to improve your type. But ultimately, everyone has their own unique way that will work best for them. It's kind of like nutrition, you know, there are general rules to follow. Like there's like eat vegetables, it's healthy for you. And if you have way too much sugar, that might be bad for you. But some if you want the most bang for your buck, you have to realize the nutrition plan that works best for you. At the end of the day, it, it will it will reflect your functions, but it, it'll be in your unique flavor of how you experience mm -hmm. those functions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I completely agree. And thank you for that illuminate, illuminating words of Dario. <laughs> oh, wow, thank you. I, and, I mean, I don't know. I feel like uh, I have to remind people because I am a dominant introverted intuiting type uh, that you know I, I'm this like huge repository of abstract impressions and that when I write, uh, many times I'm just like, okay, open the channel. After you know absorbing a lot of stuff, open the channel and like just start typing. And and what comes out is is the product of all of those impressions working together. And for me, trusting my unconscious and the environments that I have put myself in, uh, and the people I've exposed myself to, and the processes, the practices I engage in to produce that for me. Um, and, and I feel that's, you know, the, the things that I mentioned are important. So beyond knowing your type is like, what is your environment? And is that serving you well? Your relationships have a huge impact. Like, are those healthy for you or for them? Um, the practices that you engage in. So, for example, like, uh, you know, there, there's a notion that religion is about like uh, a list of like what you believe or something. I don't view it that way. I have a more Eastern idea that. I mean, there's an element of that, but in a lot of Eastern traditions, a religion, religious practice is a practice. Like, what do you do every day? And it's not necessarily what you believe. Um, and so what are your practices that help you, like, keep you in a healthy place, move you in a healthy place, bring out your creativity, um, bring out the facets of yourself that maybe you were unaware of, and that might take time. Um, and, and I do believe, and I mentioned a little bit in the book, uh, after doing all of this, like researching Jung's stuff on yoga and so on, which was actually more interesting to him than type, um, that, uh, that, that there's the, these body-mind practices that really help, you know, the nervous system runs through the whole body. 80% of the signals in the nervous system run upwards from the body into the brain. Only 20% go downward. So if we're just thinking about like what's going on here and then control it downward, that's missing like 80% of what's going on. And how can we become in touch with the whole nervous system? And then if we really think, well, we're all interconnected. And even though this seems like maybe sort of an extroverted feeling concept, um, you know, there's the energy, the consciousness of every person that we're interacting with, that we're connected with. And, and what facets of us do they bring out? What facets of the other people are bringing out? And what are we together as two different things coming together? What alchemy are we creating as a relationship? And that's, um, and, and that, I think that's a message in particular I want to bring to younger people um, who are like, you know, Gen Z and millennials that, that Jung said in the first half of the life, it's actually very normal and healthy to develop your ego, to, to adapt to society, to figure out how your contributions are going to be. Um, and then in the second half of life is more like becoming your unique self and, and putting that behind. 
So there's that developing that part of you. And at the same time, it's not just about you. It's also like, what work are you going into? Do the values of the career area you're in actually resonate with your internal values? Are the people that you're in relationship with, are those repeating negative patterns? Um, I would say, especially for intuiting types, you can go to some introverted sensing and reflect upon what are your family patterns from the generations, from your parents, from your grandparents, uh, from your culture, the family patterns that are passed down generationally, how are those impacting you? You know, and those are, and, and I think in particular for like as an NTJ, uh, it's really hard for me to see and admit that there's like all of this like historical baggage that actually greatly shapes me. Um, and I do everything as best as I can to not let it shape me my whole life, but still it's there. So to acknowledge it. So acknowledging, creating space, um, being mindful about what's healthy and, and who, who was it? Um, you know, I don't want to give the attribution to the wrong person, but is it Ram Das who talks about, you know, you go for a walk in the woods and you don't, you, you can observe that a tree, this tree is unhealthy and that tree is healthy without having a conniption, you know, or passing judgment on the tree. Oh, you're a bad tree. You know, you, you no, you notice like, oh, it didn't get enough sunlight. It's choked out by these other things. It was struck by lightning. It was burned. And, and so can we see those parts of ourselves and of others and understand this is in the same way that we know we can do with nature? It's kind of like when you have a plant that's not growing fruit, you don't blame the plant for not being good at like plant being a plant. You go like, did it need better soil? Did it need better sunlight? And so you look at the factors surrounding it because because a person isn't just a person, it's all the things that affect that person as well. So it's kind of having compa compassion for what you're looking at. If, if a person is unhealthy or healthy, you look at it with a, an observational type of view and a compassion because they are also all the factors connected to it too. I really liked Dario Nardi, how you mentioned the connectedness, like how we're all connected to the other people in our life or the other factors in our life our collaborations with other people are like alchemy. So when two people meet or when a person meets with a circumstance, it automatically creates a certain type of alchemy. You talked about like how a tree is affected by all these other factors because it's a living dynamic system. And to view people as living dynamic systems in that like if they have baggage, it might be baggage that they got from somewhere else. And then that place that they got it from also got it from somewhere else. And so it's like this never ending cycle of retracing baggage. And so you go like, you have compassion because you're like, they're, they're the output of a larger system. Mm -hmm. And for them to change, a larger system has to change and it's not their fault. And to have a kind of growth mindset with it and to fix what you can about it. So it's like, if a tree, if a tree isn't growing, then you set up conditions where it can grow better instead of judging the tree because it's unproductive to judge a tree, but you can, <laughs> but it's productive to, to, to diagnose and kind of like the areas why the tree isn't growing and, and to just, treat people like trees basically <laughs> in the mm -hmm. sense that if someone 
is is not meeting your expectations to to view it with the kindness and compassion you would for a tree not growing mm-hmm. uh, and to help it instead of judging because yeah <laughs> i completely agree sorry i'm so long-winded but uh, yes no, no, it's, I, it's great you know we we all have to you know the the ideas that that i'm putting out you know that linda barons talked about them other people have talked about them uh Fritov capra has talked a lot about natural systems um and you know one of the things that inspired me also that i should give some credit for is buddhism because I was really wondering, like, what, is there like a word to capture what happens when we bring thinking and feeling together, like a general word or, or feeling? And I very much thought of this Buddhist notion of detached compassion, that, that there's this, it's not detached in the sense of like, I don't care, or I'm just studying it or whatever, but it's also not this kind of empathy, because there is over-empathizing where we get drawn into something and and it's almost being like drawn in then to to the drama of life. Uh, I do remember many like 20 years ago, this ESFJ commenting at a birthday party. I barely even knew this person, and he's like, "Why is there so much drama in my life?" And I knew type, and he didn't know type, and so I'm thinking to myself, "Where you know, where wherever you go, there you are." So you know, it's it's the, sometimes the the over empathy or the overplaying of, of our dominant function or whatever. So what does it look like? And, and at the same, so where do we find that balance? And Buddhism talks a lot about the caring, uh, genuine caring, which often means, you know, like a tough love kind of thing. And so in the same, we can talk about like, yeah, a lot of things happen and there's like a social institutions uh, that and and there's family histories and all of these things that bring people to where they are, but there is also responsibility. And in fact, we can replace the word "but" with "and" and say there's also respo- personal responsibility. And and then where where how do we bring that together? And that's you know what life is about is 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 engaging in that alchemy uh, for for sensing and intuiting. I had come to this idea that there's like the infinite now. And not not in the sense of being lost in the moment, uh, as if it were just extroverted sensing or something, but there's this appreciation for cosmic, the cosmic nature of, of, of an experience, even as one's attention is fully on what is going on now. And and there, it, it, what does it look like? You know, that's something to to practice and to experience. Uh, and then I really got a lot of great ideas and feedback uh, from a colleague of mine, ESTJ preferences, um, on sort of breaking those out for every single type and what those would look like. Um, I don't remember them off the top of my head, but she did a great job of it. And, and so there was, uh, so do, folks can know, like that was the inspiration, but then how did we bring that into type and, and what can that look like? Um, the, that uh, that synergy, because I, I feel like sometimes examples are great, but people also need like a, to find that feeling, and that feeling tone is what Jung would call it—a feeling tone as that that way to like help guide them to that and help them stay there. Yeah, that that is wonderfully put. Um, I had one more comment on your analogy of the tree. And so I thought about how, like, yeah, like when you're saying, 
you don't blame the tree. And in, in the sense that with people, we blame people or we blame ourselves for things, but it's to like look beyond that and to take personal responsibility, like you were saying, and instead of instead of pointing fingers, because that's the easier option to do. But actually like holding yourself accountable to like taking a broader view and then doing something about it is is another story. So completely agree. And so my next question for you, Darian Ardi, is what is the transcendent function? You know, that's a, the, there's a different ways to approach that. One of them is a transcendent function with a small t and or a big T. And with this a small t, it's more about being in transition and transitions in life and being mindful of the opportunities and their choices in those transitions. Uh, and we experience transitions all the time as we go through like from high school to college or from being single to being in a you know, steady relationship to, to having, not having children and having children. And then again, not having children later as they you know, go on um, their own lives. And, and so there are those kinds of transitions, small t. And then big T is like that shock to the system um, that really is like a, a sea change or a, a level change that we move up in a different perspective. And, and I think a great example, I, I do think it takes something extreme or something extraordinary to go into that place. And um, Nicole Gruel, who is a member of the type community for years, who's based in Australia, uh, did her, her dissertation and she does her work on um, non-ordinary transcendent experiences, notes, um, and interviewed many, many, many people of different types. She uses type uh, to see, you know, where, where do those non-ordinary transcendent experiences come from? What do they look like? Uh, how, how does each type experience them differently? Um, it's very interesting. She found that those with extroverted thinking were often loathe to talk about them and, and or, or even acknowledge that they had happened, uh, and, which I understand as somebody who also has extroverted thinking, it is the, the function that is the most about keeping the ego stuff together. And, and uh, but at the same time, introverted intuiting is all about like the transcendent experience. So, so there can be these like near death experience, um, you know, sometimes like a psychedelic drug use, uh, things like uh, Kundalini yoga awakening. Um, there, there are certain just extreme experiences like childbirth, for example, and witnessing it, even much less experiencing it. Uh, the, these um, be, being in like in an accident and other people die and you don't die, uh, even though no, no near death experience, just the 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 transient reality of nature, uh, of our nature, that, that we're all, you know, sort of Shakespearean characters on a stage, that we wear masks and uh, that we have roles. I'm the Dario role. I'm, I have this, these scripts. Uh, I have props. Um, we, I have a backdrop on the stage. And how seriously do we take that? And, and it's very easy, I think, to to suddenly be, well, I'm wearing like a, a blue robe and you're wearing a red robe. So we're, we have to be enemies of each other. Um, and that's, that's just stage play. You know, the, in Hinduism and Buddhism, that's Maya, it's illusion. Um, 
there are some real definite things. And Jung talked about this idea of the definite world versus the meaning world. So we still have to put food on the table. We do have to make choices in life about practical things, um, where we're going to live, like who we're going to marry, like it comes down to practical stuff. Um, but it, it really is, it's like there's this transcendence in the sense of an awakening process or awakening moment that is like, oh, you know what? I can, I can put the script down and I can pick up another script or I can edit the script. There are things that I don't have to do. Uh, mindfulness work uh, often brings that up. Uh, I think it's fascinating. There's a paper that came out, a meta study on a criticism of mindfulness that one in four people have a negative experience with it. Uh, that they sit there and they're being mindful and they're following these instructions and, and then, you know, negative material comes up and they feel unhappy or they feel pain. Yeah, that's the point. Um, you know, you recognize something that's not so pleasant. It's not just about feeling good, but ultimately is about taking responsibility and making choices. And, and if that means even acknowledging I'm wearing a mask right now, the author mask or the public speaker mask or whatever it is. Um, and, and the willingness to put those down sometimes, uh, the willingness to step off the stage, this stage at least, and to another one. Um, that's not a new idea. You know, it's actually been around for thousands of years. It's a Greek concept. It's a, it's a Shakespearean concept. It's a Hindu concept. Buddhist concept, um, but it seems like, you know, we all have to be shaken and reminded all the time, and, and, and yet we don't wake up, and so there is that transcendence with the big T of waking up. So before I describe this process, and Jung describes how the transcendent function works in the sense of like, how does like uh, any process work from beginning, middle, end, and he just he lays it out at the beginning, and then, then this, and then, then that, but the practical thing, like the catalyst that gets started is, you know, I believe and he believes that there's this inner push, and, but it's quiet and it's sort of weak and it needs to be complemented by the environment. And, and if the person can get electroshock therapy, metaphorically speaking, to wake up and be like, oh, okay, like, wow, I'm like way overdoing like the feeling function or thinking function or whatever it is. Um, I need to step back from that um, and create space for something different. Then, then that's amazing, you know, and then that's, that's, that's the, an example of the transcendent function. Um, uh, Steve Myers, uh, based in the UK, not related to Isabel Myers, gives a, a great example of the transcendent function in talking about type and the Myers-Briggs. And he says that Isabel Briggs Myers, um, she has INFP preferences and she read Ty Jung's work, but she believed the transcendent function was out of people's reach, the average person. She felt it was reserved for like a special situations, a special people. And so she put together this idea of dominant and then auxiliary and the auxiliary was there to balance the dominant. And that's, wasn't, you know, that, that's the, a good prescription for most people is like a good way to live, um, which is fair enough, you know, is a good start. But Steve Myers looked back and he said, no, but wait, look at Isabel Myers' life. She's INFP and yet she managed to create an assessment that even now, I mean, form M, which is not even, you know, it's only half related to what she did originally, 
you know, passes all these statistical tests. It's supposed to be an objective measure of personality to help people discover their gifts. Um, she, a whole worldwide organization grew up around her. Now it's more informal than formal, but it used to be more formal organization. So a lot of extroverted thinking and introverted sensing happened. And she really, her transcendent function within her created or helped to create this organization, helped to create an instrument that then became the catalyst or platform for yet something else, including going back and revisiting Jung. And I think that that's, uh, you know, so it, maybe when we look back on our lives, we won't see a lot of examples when we're 20 or 30, but I guarantee to listeners when you look back and you're 45 or 60, by then, uh, hopefully you will see examples of the transcendent function. And the whole purpose of the book was to help ensure that people get started early in the same way they say the people who start a good exercise regime before age 35 are way more likely to keep it than people after 35. Like that's a cutoff year. Um, the, the let's get started early with it to make sure when people look back and they're their parents' age and their grandparents' age, that they don't be like, oh, I wish I did something different. And, and I don't want people to, I don't want to feel that way. And I don't want other people to feel that way. So why, why not, you know, share all of the stories and examples and just make that available as like a, a, a manual. Yeah, that's beautiful. So I, I see like maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but I see two ways of transcending. So you, you using the transcendent function. So one way is the like transcending unconsciousness. So it's like getting out of that unconscious state of wearing a mask and identifying with the mask. Mm -hmm. They they say like a lot of spiritual teachers say, who are you beneath the doing? Um, are you so busy human doing that you like, who is your human being? So that's a, a way of overcoming, like overcoming unconsciousness is a way of transcendence. And it seems like another way of reaching like the transcendent function is also overcoming one-sidedness. So the moment when you're able to become something more than like that one dimensionalness of one sidedness that also helps you transcend in some way too. So this is really, really interesting, Dario Nardi. Lots of wisdom. Like this is like, these are like prime spiritual teachings too. Even like in the broader scope outside of type, this is applicable to a lot of areas of your life as well, which is like so helpful for like becoming a better person and like just improving yourself and and making the most out of your existence. So I, I like these tips, even past type, it, it, it just helps people in general. Mm -hmm. And and so my next question for you, Dario Nardi, is your 512 type model. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it doesn't have to be 512. It's just this idea that uh, we can get into subtypes or flavors of type. And uh, I draw the line around 256 or 512 because I'm looking at what's currently statistically supportable uh, in terms of what we know um, from different instruments and assessments and so on. Like, could we actually put together, like, have a person take like two or three different assessments and then be quite confident, not, not hypothetically, but like ones already developed and validated, and be quite confident that this actually describes where this person fits in this palette of like 512 or whatever it is. Um, 
I mean, obviously, there, there's another group out there of, uh, there's a group of type people who very much espouse like subtypes and the 512 types and so on. Uh, and, you know, and there, there is some inspiration uh, from that. Uh, however, back in, when I wrote Character and Personality in 2001, uh, I already talked about subtypes and there were already 256 then. So it, it was just, I didn't have any instrument or handle on it or anything like that. Um, I think more than the idea is not to, to classify people and say, you're, you know, you're an MXLQ546 or whatever it is, um, that, that might have its applications, but that's not what it's about. Uh, because the magic in knowing about type and type dynamics is this is where you've been and this is where you are, and this is where you can be going. So it, it really is, it, hopefully it's going to serve that purpose. Um, you know, there, there's great work that's been done by Victor Galenko, uh, who comes from Socionics, but a slightly different brand of Socionics. Um, uh, and, and many, many years, yeah, I forget how many, it's like 40 years of working with type as a psychologist, uh, the Socionics version of type, and, and seeing like Socionics, the sort of, which is like the, the I want to say like the Eastern European version of, of Jung's work, it, it, it had like the type, some of the types look very different and some look very similar. So like ISFPs and socionics look very different than ISFPs in, in Myers-Briggs. And, and Victor Galenko was sort of like, well, they look different because if we say there's like these four different sort of flavors of type or subtype, then the Myers-Briggs emphasizes the creative version of ISFP, like relentlessly, the, the, like carefreeze, child of nature and loves animals and is a musician and all, which is, there is that version of ISFP. But there are also ISFPs who are bureaucrats and there are ISFPs who just like totally normal, like they don't consider themselves particularly artistic or whatever. Mm -hmm. They are about extroverted sensing and introverted feeling, but they might be in a business context, for example. It's not creative. So he talked about like, uh, you know, creative, versus normalizing. And normalizing doesn't mean normy, although it can, uh, but it means like the person is trying to bring something into the norm, which could be an ENFJ who has discovered something amazing and she or he has a life quest to make this a norm for society. And that would be a normalizing ENFJ, which is very different from like, I knew an ENFJ who's an Italian opera singer. And it's all about the creativity and the personal growth and singing and artwork and uh, food and all of this. So it's a very, it's a very different flavor of ENFJ. Uh, and then there is the like a dominant or directive version. Uh, and then there is the, the harmonizing version. And we might think, well, are all INFPs harmonizers? No. Okay. It, it's not necessarily. I do believe for each type that there's like an interaction style and there's like a home base for them. But, you know, I've known enough INTJs in my life and now uh, is my own type that they're all like a different facets of the same diamond, but we look different. I'm a little bit envious sometimes of the INTJs I meet who are really good as like big corporate executives. You know, I'm like, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to be going around telling people what to do. I'm aware I can do that. Like, th it is possible, but I've never really had the opportunity to practice that. And that's not where my passion is. 
Um, I'm not really like the normalizing INTJ uh, because I don't, you know, I grew up in, in several different, I experienced different cultures. I went for three years to British school in the Caribbean. So that, and that was my introduction to social life. I, I didn't, like I started kindergarten and first and second grade, which are very like formative years. And those have always stayed with me and then living in Japan and going to school in Japan. And, and to me, those like, well, I could never be just like a, a typical person. And I have really short attention span for something. I mean, neuroscience, I've kept a long attention span, but, but I love playing with my, my intuitive side. I certainly learned in the Caribbean how to have fun and because that's a very ESFP culture. So I'm very much more the creative INTJ and that's okay. And Victor Galenko does a great job of describing each of the, the 16 typical, you know, sort of standard types from those four different angles for 64. So I was really inspired by that. I didn't borrow wholesale from him, but I did find as I started with my neuro, like doing the neuroscience actual statistical analysis, because it's been nine years since the previous book, it's been 10 years now since I started doing analysis. I'm like, I have like six times as many people from like different cultures and ages and all of this stuff I need to reanalyze all over again. And I look at brain wiring, not just brain activity. And, you know, we can pick a level of resolution. We can say, you know, for every type, are there like two, can we sort them into two classes or clusters, factors, statistically, their brain wiring, we can sort them into four, we can sort them into six or eight or whatever it is. Uh, some of them hold together better than others. I found when I sorted into two or four, I was getting the same things that Victor was getting. Like spit an image. I even asked Victor, I'm like, can I just use your terms? Because they're so similar. Why not? Except that I can say like, I'm coming from like these definitions that are based upon like favorite brain regions to develop or something like that. So you can have an ENTP who is a tech entrepreneur and is nerdy and the this and that. You can have the ENTP who is a clinical psychologist and, and actually has tremendous capacity with people in sort of Milton Erickson style. Uh, you can have yet more different ENTPs. Um, and, and, you know, I call them, they're not just types, they're flavors because the, the core integrity of the person is still this pattern of dominant function and auxiliary. Um, but there's, there's more, you know, that comes out through like the tree in different environments. You know, how does it grow? What gets emphasized? And to see that emphasis and to acknowledge that and to say, hey, that's important. And I really believe even for the very basic part of type clarification, so an example I think would be extroverted intuiting. For you folks listening who are NP types, I really notice with, with extroverted intuiting, it seems to come in two flavors in terms of brain wiring and then affect and stuff that goes with it. Um, one is the, almost this like marketer is what I call it. The person who's in marketing mode most of the time, who's a sort of Barnum and Bailey kind of personality uh, there are some ENTPs that honestly feel like at every moment I can't tell whether they're being honest or whether they're just like grossly exaggerating and trying to sell me something. I'm this at one extreme. But then the other one who's just like very energetic 
And like you, you know what's on their mind because they're verbalizing it and they're they're connecting those potential possibilities in the moment with you. And then there's another kind of extroverted intuiting mode or flavor. This I think really highlighted like 10 years ago in my lab and there was an ENFP student and she's just sitting there between like exercises that she's doing and she's wearing the EEG cap and her brain goes into this like brainstorming mode and, but she's just sitting there. And, and I'm like, I won't repeat her name, but I, I'm just like, what, what do you, what's going on right with you right now? What are you thinking about? And she says, I'm looking at those two other people, other students in the lab who are across the room, and I'm imagining different scenarios about what's going on with them. Like, what are they discussing and in their interaction and all of that? And that version is much more quiet. It's observing, and it's playing mentally in the mind, and it's waiting for that moment to intervene by asking a question or making a little suggestion or telling a joke that moves the situation in a total, the dynamic in a totally different direction. And that person is a catalyst, but they're not showy at all. And that person might be mistaken for being an introvert, or they might be mistaken for using introverted intuiting or something like that. And yet when you look at the brain wiring, when you look at the brain activity, when you talk and you ask them, you debrief, what is it that you identify with in type, how, why, you see like, oh, okay, you know, let's acknowledge that there are the different ways to use the processes. Some people call masculine feminine. Uh, I went really with what's in neuroscience, the best I could correlate, you know, words, and that was analytic and holistic. A lot of it because it seems like after age 25, your career choice is the number one thing that's going to influence what flavor you are and how your brain is wired and what skills you develop. And, and there's an analytic set of skills and there's this holistic set of skills for each function. And then we can sort of combine those dominant and auxiliary and we end up with four combinations. And those are those four like Galenko subtypes and we can go a little bit further than that we can look at like what is our secondary subtype so i'm like creative first harmonizing second uh sometimes i can get into like a little bit of a dominant mode if i'm actually put into that position but i'm always creative first and and so what and if so we and the research supports that helen fisher is a neuroscientist who's done great work on neurotransmitters that's what i'm going to end with is talking about her and she identifies normally in, in her books and in interviews, she talks about four like types um, that at first don't seem to match up with type the way we know it. But actually her deeper analysis and in one or two popular articles, she talks about eight types. That there are four, each four break down into two and you get eight. Uh, there's a lot of statistical support for it, neuroscience support for it. And those eight, you're like, oh, that's where type and the neurotransmitters and stuff intersect. But it's not like, you're not going to say like, oh, because you have this neurotransmitter, like, oh, you have high testosterone relative to other people. So you're extroverted thinking type. It's not like that because, you know, you can have two TJ types, male, female, or two males, one who has higher testosterone than the other. They don't cease being a TJ type, but their flavor changes. And, and so, yeah, apparently I'm the dopamine version of INTJ. 
and that's uh, which I can understand. Um, and uh, you know, I'm not the serotonin version of INTJ, and I can tell that's my weakness. Even once I started reading about that, so when I bring together Galenko's work, Helen Fisher's work, my own brain wiring work, uh, the success of of um, Amina Barmani and analyzing sort of the cognitive processes assessment, I'm like, the point of it, we can say there's 256 subtypes. I think we can say there are 512. We could go even maybe further, but let's say 512. 512 is a number to really says to people, hey, you know, there, it's a meaningful difference. And, and that's the, the supportable that we really can arrive there and say something. So that's what that has been about. Uh, I think for type clarification, it's really important. And for overcoming one-sidedness, it's important because I've been teaching this workshop and as people go through, through Personality Hacker, um, great folks, Joel and Antonia, great. Um, and, and some people are like, wow, I'm like all on the holistic side for all of my functions or I'm mostly on the analytic side, does that mean I'm one-sided? Maybe, maybe that's something to explore. So maybe you're one-sided even in your own dominant function. That is such a good way of putting it. Like you can be one-sided in your use of holistic or analytic, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, person, even, yeah. Yeah, that's even a further distinction of how you can be one-sided. That's so interesting. <laughs> I'm I'm really fascinated by your 512 model. I really like how your your understanding of brain science kind of unifies the different models too because like Victor Glenko, he's a socionist and you know, you bring in brain science and you unify that and you unify the different subtypes and the last thing type theory needs is another model. So what yours does so brilliantly is you tie them together and it kind of gives a comprehensive version of type rather than like further segregating type into different fractions. And I really appreciate that about all the work that you're doing. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It, it is um, something I hope that uh, by the early, how can I say, by the early 90s in the last century, the people began to recognize that this MBTI four-letter code thing was really limiting. And it was in organizations everywhere, and it was a four-letter code. There was no cognitive functions. Uh, people weren't learning those at all. Um, and, you know, and then by the early 2000s, there had really been the shift, I would say by 2005, the, the, the professional type community, and I mean the organizations that are like the, organ, the national and international organizations for coaches and counselors and consultants and mm -hmm. so on, were like, no, we definitely want temperament, interaction styles, cognitive functions, like all of these to be presented along with type so that people get a rich understanding. And then the, the internet or World Wide Web came along uh, and it was sort of tame in the first decade, but after that, it just exploded. It has exploded with this mass of, but what about this, but what about this, but what about this, but what about this? And people coming up with all of these different things. Uh, I would say a lot of them, I describe them, and, and this is true, it's even for my own work, are their, their personal projects. They're actually psychological projects where the person is creating the model 
and working with it and advancing it and teaching their version in order to understand actually how really the not just the concepts but the psyche their own psyche and how it works for them i mean that, that that's I, I think that's true for every person who gets into type in some way they're ultimately doing self-work um I think some of these models have gone so far afield that, you know, like they're using type terms, but they're not actually like the labels, but the definitions have gone so far away from Jung and whatnot, it's confusing people. And, and I think it's really great that I feel like just now we're starting to come back to like a filtering or weeding out process where we're getting more like ethics standards, uh, processes for people to engage in, a recognition of like, you know, the, these things that actually people were practicing 40 years ago and they're sort of forgotten about good, like best practices professionally and, and beginning to come back to that and remembering that what type is about is not about typing people. And that's uh, which, you know, the name sort of suggests type typing people. Um, but, uh, you know, may, maybe there's a different word for it. Type is such a great word. It's short. It's pithy. It's great for marketing. It's got good cognitive cognitive hook. Um, but, but it really is about development and, and I think we can get back to that in a way that's professional and that doesn't create these like, uh, very elaborate mousetraps. Yeah. Elaborate mousetraps. My friend puts it as type arrogance. So it'll go like, you know, Hey, I, I can type you better than you can type yourself or it becomes like this elaborate mousetrap of trying to think that you're better than other people because you can type people better or, or just overanalyzing stuff so much you don't use it to improve. So it can very easily be a justification to keep being the way that you are. There's a saying that you can use type as a hammer to build a house or a hammer to to beat yourself up with, I don't know. <laughs> so you can use it in productive and unproductive ways. It, it can also be used as a tool for transcendence as you so well put Dario Nardi. And it's great that you have like, you're bringing that into awareness. You're bringing like the spiritual and growth oriented elements of type back into light and like refocusing people on why this tool is so important and bringing back the purpose of the tool so people can reflect more on that and can use that more for the correct reasons and i really appreciate that about the the things that you put into this space and so my next question for you dario nardi is can you give us like a, a quick summary of how the functions show up in brain scans for instance, like you characterize FI and brain scans as active listening, like listening with your whole brain. And you and you talk about how extroverted intuition is like a Christmas tree pattern. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, jumping from one idea to another and just going around your whole brain and brainstorming. And so I was wondering if maybe you could give like a quick idea of how they show up in brain scans. Yeah, so I, I certainly, uh hoped vaguely and, and I'm sure other people hoped too that brain imaging would would replace the Myers-Briggs type indicator or some other assessment or whatever and we could tell people's type from their brains um, but you know the brain is is the result it's a snapshot of the developed self so it's it's what your skills are and if you're a musician uh, or artist, that doesn't mean you're ISFP or ISFJ or INFP or whatever it is. I mean, we know every type can be an artist and being an artist requires certain skills. 
Um, of course, the brain allows multiple paths to get at the same skills. I find, especially with musicians, tremendous diversity and how their brains work. Um, I do get people who come to me saying, you know, I can't decide, am I like INFP or INFJ? Which is like, you know, the oldest question and type in terms of sorting. Um, and, and, you know, I, we do the brain imaging session and I get the results, which, uh, you know, it come in different ways. So one is the brain wiring, one is just, which are the result of long-term habits. Then there's also just which parts of the brain are active now or less, more or less active, uh, which is more like a short-term snapshot of a person. Um, and I'm like, well, no wonder you're wondering INFJ or INFP because you have qualities of both. And by that, I mean, you know, when I have a large enough data set of like now, over, I don't know how many people there are now, but over 350, um, you know, there, there are statistical tools to sort people and, and, and to see when we sort by sex, by age, by career, by culture, uh, by dominant function or preferred function, or the, by preferred function, we see these patterns that there are favorite brain regions. That doesn't mean that every person has those, but there are certainly favorite brain regions. And those influence the way I defined um, type. And by favorite brain regions, I mean the ones that are the hubs that are most densely wired or the ones that are most active in young adults. Um, and I think that's relevant. I started with young adults, not only because that was very convenient. I had college students all around me. Um, but that's also where Isabel Meyer started. And we're getting a time in people's lives when they're developing their core self into adults rather than like developing their shadow side or something like that, uh, generally speaking. So I, I can look at those and say, you know, there, there are favorite brain regions or favorite connectivity patterns. Um, networks, favorite networks. Uh, I don't talk about, in my 2011 book, I don't really talk about networks, but most of my research then has been about networks um, mm -hmm. and how those the different regions connect in the brain. But the, yeah, as you mentioned, there's a level beyond it when you're talking about a macro, macro view, sort of these whole brain patterns. Um, and, and this is like when all of the regions get in sync with each other and are all delta waves, which should be very relaxed and maybe even asleep, but are actually at maximum amplitude. So it's like easily listening music, but dialed up to 10 on the, or 100 on the volume meter. So it's like somebody's really into that like Mozart concerto, you know, whatever it is. Um, what are they doing? And, and so, and I'm not the only one who, who has seen this. There are other people who have noticed that there are these macro states when the person is all on theta or they're all on gamma or whatever it is. There are different kinds of states. They don't have to be all unified. They could be like the Christmas tree pattern where they're all different. The thing is I found that, uh, or, or like with extrovert, dominant extroverted thinking, like brain activity is just really low. It's very efficient. Like, why think outside the box if, or the, the four boxes if the four boxes cover 95% of what we're doing? Um, <laughs> you know, in fact, I got an ENTJ like that, and he came in and he really came out the very stereotypical result. He's like, oh my God, am I brain dead? I'm like, no, it's dominant extroverted thinking. But in all fairness, he also had very little sleep. He was severely jet lagged. Uh, so we decided we'll do it again like in a month or so and we did and we did it again and he still came out like he had more activity But he still came out like everything is pretty low Not like 
weirdly low as it was before, but low. I'm like, yeah, that's an extroverted thinking often looks like. Like is just efficient. That's why they can be making decisions, you know, 22 hours a day. Um, and, and so there are these repeating patterns that I see particularly with young adults. They don't occur as much with, I want to say, like, you know, th the 30 to 60 range. Uh, I haven't I haven't looked at older like 65 plus adults enough. I don't it, I haven't analyzed the results enough to say, but there are these whole brain patterns, and because for the most part, these patterns align with what we know about type. That I'm like I'm definitely onto something. Um, they don't 100% align, and that's why my definitions or the way I define things, of course, are a little bit different than how other people do. But not radically different. They're like 10% different. Um, and that's, that's where I got that. But I want people to know that's like, and this is something you mentioned sort of at the beginning, there's this, well, there's brain, there's mind, and there's psyche or psych. And, and the brain is just the physical hardware. Uh, mind is information processing, what we think of as like cognitive functions, things like sorting and comparing and reviewing and, and noticing patterns. You know, computers can do a lot of those too. And they're implemented on silicon instead of on a, you know, a mushy brain, uh, meat brain. Uh, but Jung was really, he wasn't even just talking about cognitive functions. He was talking about psyche. And, and psyche is the systemic thing that includes the individual in their environment. Um, and the brain is actually continuously receiving information. In fact, in, if the person is awake and in a completely sensory deprived place, they will start to go crazy because the brain is looking for information from the real world to inform it at every moment. Um, so we really are these, these creatures embedded strongly within our environment. And, and that's why the brain imaging then becomes this level of the developed self saying what's going on with the brain, but it doesn't quite capture the psyche. So I don't think brain imaging will ever replace, you know, or, or like what Jung talks about. Jung takes a very, I don't want to say mystical because he denied mysticism. He just took psychology, took psychology very seriously. So that includes everything. It includes thinking, it includes feeling, it includes sensing, it includes intuiting, and it includes transcendence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your work in this space. Yeah, and I guess um, to, to go over a few other of mm -hmm. your, your brain discoveries, just so everyone in the audience can know about it. So NI, introverted intuition, in brain scans, mm -hmm. it shows up as like a zen-like state. And like with SE, it, I believe you called it like the tennis hop, where it's like reacting immediately to in the present um, stimuli. Or I'm no, no it, it's the tennis hop. I just I have to give credit to one of my lab students uh, who came up with that term and the the metaphor because I, I didn't really, I mean he was someone familiar with tennis and he's like oh this would be this is a great parallel for it and um, and then in my mind I'm like trying to remember his name. And I did for the longest time, and now it slipped my mind. I'll have to go back and look it up. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's certainly these different sort of interesting patterns that come up. Um, I, I think it, it's so fascinating with introverted intuiting that, you know, and sometimes I, I sort of take it for granted. It's a delightful tool in a way. 
it's like somebody asked me a question and I don't know much about it, but I can draw upon everything I know, not in a, in a logical way. Like I'm not, the, the wheels aren't turning. Uh, in fact, if, if a viewer can see the wheels turning, then it's like, oh no, like either he's tired or the intuition isn't coming to him or like whatever it is. But for the most part, like when I write or when I come up with stuff or whatever, I'm gathering information and then I wake up in the morning, so to speak, and then I'm like, okay, so here's the answer. And, and if, I don't, if the answer doesn't come, then I'm like, okay, I need more information or I need to, to, to feed the unconscious more so that it can just pop out the answer that it needs. Because I, I don't like chug through problems. You know, does A logically follow from B? And I mean, I do that as a check later, but, but there is that magical moment. And I saw that in the lab, you know, there would be, situations where the person has to come up with spontaneous responses to things um, with expertise and what does that look like? What does that activate in the brain? Uh, the same for, well, with extroverted sensing, um, that's a pattern that I would see when we gave people Mario Kart to play. as like a handheld game that a lot of people would show that pattern, but that SP types would show that pattern many other times. I mean, at least the ones who were students I don't see that as often with people who are older SPs because um, I, I find like as people get older, their brain wiring tends to coalesce more around their career area and like how they function career wise. Um, but the, it is that magic sort of spontaneous. The tennis hop is like when you're playing tennis with somebody, after you lob the ball, you don't just stand there oh, I wonder where the ball is going to go. No, you keep like moving back and forth a little bit on your feet so you maintain momentum. And so whether the ball goes to the left or to the right or wherever, that your momentum is there to carry you quickly in the direction that you need to. Mm -hmm. And then there's one example. Of course, I, I also drew upon things, not just from my own research, but other people's research, like the stuff that was done on people who described themselves as lucky. And they gave themselves a game. They gave people this game uh, where they had to pick. Uh, they had to like every so often while they're playing a game, like some extra little thing would pop up that's worth like a ton of points. And could the person respond to that quickly to actually grab that for like the fraction of a second that it's there? And they found that the people who described themselves as lucky did much better on this game than people who described themselves as not lucky or, you know, wh whatever that would be. And it really was about the capacity to, to be aware, to remain aware of what's going on in the environment and to grab opportunities. Not notice potential patterns of possibility or discuss abstractions. They're very into the game. An actual thing showed up on the screen worth actual points and they grab it. That sounds a lot like the extroverted sensing types. And, and so there's this, and the notion of luck and this and that and what's going on with the brain. Um, it's even interesting the way the heart works, that we might think that a healthy heart has a very even beat. Um, and in the macro scale, that's true. But at the micro scale, the heart, if you really zoom in to each like little line of the heart's electrical sort of beat, you see a ton of like little micro back and forth tennis hops. Because at any moment, boom, somebody could come through that door behind you. And are, is your heart ready to respond to that change? And if your heart is super steady, they discovered actually people with unhealthy hearts 
are ones that even when you zoom in at the micro scale, you discover they're over even. They don't have that little tennis hop. So we see this principle repeated in different places, or we see a principle that's like a different facet of extroverted sensing or extroverted feeling or whatever it is. Um, and I talk about these more in the magic diamond, I, I think in a way that's usable to people right off by having like a distinct page that has like a little brain map and like really breaks it down into like five essential things. And, and those are like the common patterns that maybe are not universal for every person of that type, but are when we sort them out, we see that, yeah, these are the things that, that explain what's going on with the person of this type of that type. I, I've seen, you know, in, in an exercise, uh, in a course, where I asked everybody to do the NI exercise. And, and I sort of, to, to demo it first, I call upon someone in the audience. And it was great because I didn't know the people, you know, for every person, there was like 80 people in the room. This was, um, this was at Google. I don't remember which, if it was the one at Mountain View or the one in London. I think it was the one in London. Um, and it's funny, she used ENFP preferences, it turns out. But when I gave her the NI question, she looked away like this. And then she looked back again, and it was like 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, 1,000, 4, 1,000. And she came back, and she had that spontaneous answer. And, and it, was a, you know, it was a look inside and, like, clear your mind and, like, allow something to come out that's the answer that you need kind of answer, not just, like, a fun random answer. And it was so great because I'm like, you just did introverted intuiting, like a classic, like, let me disengage from the environment in order to allow something internal to come up. That's a novel answer that binds everything together, but she's an ENFP. And I'm like, see, we can, that isn't your, and she's like, that is not my preferred mode of doing things. But she didn't even think about that's what she was doing in the moment. So I really, you know, have seen this, like everybody is capable of doing all of the functions in a basic way. And maybe half the functions, you know, three to five functions in a, like a moderately sophisticated way. Maybe not very often, but it might take a while, but is capable of doing it. And that's, you know, comes out of the brain research, like just give yourself to the count of 10. Yeah. And you will be surprised at the number of extra things your brain can do. When you just, whatever your mode is, because everybody is fast in their brain, unless they have, you know, like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or something, their brain is fast in the thing that they do well, which we might liken to our dominant function, but like slow down and give yourself those 10 extra seconds. And so if you ask the INTJ, how do you feel really right now? And you allow them to go away for 10 seconds. And then they can come back and tell you in like an honest way. And the same, I think, for, say, ENFP, you know, is, is that what, what is like the logical decision that you could make now based on the evidence at hand? Like what, what's the thing that's doable that, that's like step one, two, three? And you give the ENFP, not instant, but like give them those 10 extra seconds and they can come back and they usually can do it. And that's, and I think that's that's a great testament to to type, the and this idea of functions that it's like 
yeah, we have them within us. It's just the time needed to do it and make it like longer and longer. The scope narrows down more and more. Um, I do extroverted sensing for sure, but I do it a lot less than an ESFP does. And I do it in, you know, specific circumstances. And that's, so I saw those kinds of things in the brain lab all the time. And I still see them all the time. Um, and, you know, the only shame is I only was thinking about subtypes after the fact. And, uh, but then maybe that's good because then I didn't bias or front load myself to look for things that aren't there. It confirms how we can all use all functions. It just, you, sometimes people need like a 10 second break or some sort of break from their autopilot response to access it. Yeah. And yeah, we, <laughs> that is so fascinating and amazing. And it, it, it shows like how there's so much potential within people. Yeah, wow, that's so cool. <laughs> I wow, sorry that yeah, amazing. Yeah. I totally agree with you saying like SE users, they they have a very response ready brain, the tennis hop brain. And so the the last function in the brain, um, I was wondering FE, what is like a simple way to put FE in the brain? It was only one or two times that I saw like this whole brain pattern specific to FE. Um, it may be that the kinds of things we did in the lab. Uh, weren't really, you know, allowed in a way, or I didn't facilitate them. Uh, it's not my favorite function as an INTJ, uh, but we did see it a few times. Uh, one time that it came up, uh, very specifically, was an ENFJ, and um, I gave them this, uh, giving people this exercise where they hear uh, a, a, a newspaper story. And it's about, essentially, it's a tragedy, but it's also about somebody who made a mistake um, and then others who suffered a consequence for it. And then I ask people afterwards, like in one or two words, please describe how you feel. And the ENFJ refused to answer that way. She, I mean, she explained, she said, no, I don't want to answer that way in one or two words because that would be simplistic. And she went and talked about like, you know, people's like, I want to say like a karmic or moral responsibility to each other and gave this answer that was much more nuanced about like how we live together in society and these kinds of things. And she just really held this like solid, very high amplitude uh, delta wave pattern, which be, you know, so like an in the flow pattern the whole time, like all the like two minutes that she talked about it. And she was really in the flow. Now, maybe that's specific to ENFJ or to her, but I thought it was a great example in terms of like society and morals and ethics and that kind of stuff and articulating that. Uh, and, you know, extroverted feeling is uh, a judging function in the sense that, it, you know, it sets goals. It has, uh, you know, it has a rationale for things. Um, it's structured. It organizes. Uh, not in the way that thinking does, but it, it does these things uh, or it helps us do these things. Um, and, and that's an, you know, that's one example. And then the other examples are just like looking at individual brain regions and brain wiring and asking what's typical or like favorite, um, favorite brain regions. And that would allow me, for example, to say that although feeling types in general are more auditory, that FI is actually more about listening than FE is, and FI is specifically good at listening for the qualitative aspects of what's said, 
um, like voice tone and the intention implied by it and what's not said versus FE, which is much more like left brain in its, its experience. Um, FE can also have this, um, you know, parts of the, the right brain though that are involved in like really empathizing and feeling what others are feeling um, about having like honest emotional expression. So there, there's different facets of it besides like this very clear judging aspect or decision. I want to say like left prefrontal cortex. Um, that's like the executive and yet the, this is an executive that's like wholly like values based and in terms of like social impact and relationship impact. Um, and it's fascinating over the years, you know, then taking the brain imaging results and comparing those to the people I know in my life and asking myself like, oh, I wonder what part of their brain is active right now as they're doing this or they're doing that. Um, and so that, I mean, I, I don't use that as a basis for, for explaining, but it's been very interesting, you know, to sort of put instead of a type lens to have like a, a neuroscience lens. Yeah, that is so fascinating and well explained. And so I realized I didn't touch on two cognitive functions, but I guess I'll explain it because I read your book. So basically like TI, where it shows up in the brain is it's in like the middle of the brain. Like, so when people have TI, the middle of the brain activates. And with SI, it has like a specialized brain pattern where you'll see like specific nodes that like SI users have the most diverse brain patterns because they specialize in different things, but like their brain is very um, concentrated in what it specializes in. Yeah, so thank you so much. Dario Nardi for coming out. Um, I really, really appreciate your your newest book and your your book on neuroscience of personality. But um, this the magic diamond is a really interesting contribution to type, and I I really really enjoyed reading it. Um, it really connects back to Young's work really well, and you have a very interesting take on on type development. And I think that like this book is a is a very great contribution to anyone's typology reading list and yeah Dario Nardi thank you for adding like neuroscience and like a, a scientific spin on the personality field and you really really add to the works of of this field because you you bring it back to how it shows up in people like for real because like and you, you add so much nuance with your subtypes and your brain imaging adds so much understanding, a deep understanding into type that we wouldn't have otherwise. And so I endlessly appreciate your contributions to the field. You're a very friendly person to talk with <laughs> and you're just a boundless sea of insights into how to create alchemy in your life to transcend the one-sidedness one that many people face. So you offer a solution to one-sidedness and that's like mind-blowing, you know. And so that's so needed, you know, you're you're doing what Young really wanted with his work. Like he, he didn't just want us to learn about our type, but he wanted us to grow from it. And I feel like Young would be really happy with the direction that you're bringing type in. And it's just like this growth focused version of type. And I think that that is amazing in that it, it is such a blessing to the space. And I am like, so thankful for everything you do. Uh, and I was like, yeah, thank you for, 
for all of the amazing things you put out into the space. You're working so hard to bring us like so many books and you bring us so much science to the field and you you're on the forefronts of discovering new things about type, bringing in the direction of of growth and transcendence with the magic diamond for instance. And yeah, I I I'm just so so privileged to have the chance to talk to you. <laughs> and yeah, thank you, Darian Artie. Absolutely. No, you're welcome. And um and thank you also for being one of the folks that is out there on YouTube and in other venues that is uh you know facilitating understanding of type and helping people take it as a personal experience. Um and and that you know that every every community needs individuals like yourself as well. So it's we're we're all uh, doing our parts, as Isabel Meyer said, the gifts differing. And um, I, I do feel I, I want to say like a responsibility now that I've uh, you know started this process with neuroscience and so on to finish it. Uh, I want people to know there will be eventually an update to neuroscience of personality 2.0. Um, I just have to plow through those numbers and to do the, do the actual research. And I've only done like five of the types or something so far. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, there, there's a lot of responsibility too in making sure that it's a uh, positive impact on people's lives and, um, doing the best I can with it. So that's, uh, and, and, you know, I, I suggest to everybody like as you explore type, don't shy away from, um, I'm gonna say challenge, but you know, how do you know you're challenged? Um, like feeling pain is an example of challenge. You know, going through difficulties or challenges, and that's a growth mindset that you mentioned, like having, uh, and, and I mentioned it in the book, uh, because I feel it's one of those things that's not from type, but is like really, it, it is an essential piece um that that to maintain the growth mindset even when there's like uh an expletive ton of of difficulties yeah and and i've been around long enough in 50 years i'm like i i i've seen worse and i've seen better and it's um thank goodness type has been a really uh great aid along the way I really feel your positive impact in the space. So you are really achieving your goal in in on this on this platform, and it, it's a lot of you add a lot of valuable gems and magic into the community. So thank you for that, <laughs> and thank you viewers for watching this far. If you don't already have it, go get the magic diamond or you know Darinari's neuroscience of personality, and yeah. I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thank you, Dari and Artie. Bye, everyone. Yeah. <laughs>